So, hi, I'm Mike Wheeler here with Kim Leary, co-hosts of uh, Juliet Work. How are you doing, Kim? Really excited uh, with our guests today. We have something in common, all three of us. Yes, uh, you and I are both Amherst College graduates. You are an Amherst trustee. You have that among this trio as uh, as uh, unique status. But Ethan is an Amherst College uh, graduate as well. I don't think we're going to be talking small colleges on this, but he's doing so much interesting work on organizational behavior and uh, most recently on how remote collaboration is going for individuals and organizations as a whole. And even as we're talking about the world of work, it turns out that uh, the small college that we went to, all three of us, is exploring these same issues too, of the virtual classroom of the present and where will it be in the future? So that's great. Now, this is obviously not a unique problem and we can all learn from one another and we certainly can learn from Ethan Bernstein. So let's bring him in. Ethan, how are you doing? Hi, Mike. Hi, Kim. It's so great to be with both of you. I'm doing well. How are you? Well, uh, as I warned you this morning, um, I'm wrestling and getting pinned by technology uh, here. And it sounds as if we're actually all connected, which is great. Well, once, you know, once we figure out the implications of working without an office, we can talk about teaching without a classroom. <laughs> there you go. And are you doing that this semester, Ethan? I am. I, I am entirely virtual with all of my MBAs and my executives this semester. And what is the uh, MBA course that you're teaching? I teach a course called Managing Human Capital. Uh, in other places, it's called People. It could be called People. It could be called HR. But of course, in, in, in our audience, with our population at HBS, most of these individuals want to become someday general managers. And so it's really about how they think about managing their own human capital and managing the human capital of those around them so that their organizations are more successful. And so, Ethan, your students uh, joined you this fall knowing, yes, that it, you would be working with them virtually. That's, tr that's correct. It's been, um, I have to say, uh, you know, there are challenges. It's been a tremendous learning curve. I give our students a great deal of credit for engaging with us in the collaborative process of learning how to do this well. But, um, you know, as I reflect on this semester versus past semesters, I actually think we've probably learned as much or perhaps even more virtually. It's difficult to have the same kind of affiliation, but we're working on that. I uh, taught in the MBA program last spring uh, a full semester course in one quarter. I met with the students on one day, and after that, we were all virtual. And uh, I'll confess that I stumbled around a bit, but we get so much support, Ethan. Uh, at the end, it was working reasonably well, and a lot of what people learned was compiled over the summer. So uh, there are a lot of best practices that have been shared. So I have you to thank, Mike, I think. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it is amazing how much we all learn so quickly. I, too, was teaching last March, and within 48 hours had to transition my Kennedy School class uh, online. And I think you're right, Ethan, that there's a, a remarkable sense of collaboration and exploration and innovation that I saw on behalf of my students as we figured it out together over those uh, months 
last spring. Uh, I want to put a serious note in here, though. I mean, we're very fortunate because uh, we're teaching at a university that has deep technological resources and other resources as well. I really worry about, uh, you know, <laughs> about our grandson who's in the first grade, and it's a wonderful public school and so forth, but uh, they are really stretched. And uh, so I do hope we get to a point where we can go back to what we vaguely remember as normal. Or something better than normal. Good. I do actually hope that we can take what we've learned and, and apply it to the future and not just simply revert to the past. Fair enough. What will that look like, Ethan? What have we learned that we that you think we would be well advised to at least consider carrying forward into the future? Oh, well, I am not, I am not an expert on the future of education. Uh, there are those like Michael Horn, who I know well, who have given that great, great thought. Um, I will say, uh, you know, there are many constraints that I think we've had as I, as I reflect on the way I was educated and then the way my eight-year-old and my two-year-old are being educated. There are lots of constraints when the school year starts, when the school year stops, what a, what a week looks like that have been based on the idea that we should all be synchronized and together in person for all the moments of education. Mm-hmm. And, and if that doesn't have to be the case, you, you could imagine a way in which we could build a model where the physical assets and the digital assets were used not just to boost education quality, but also the efficiency with which we deliver that education such that we could we could reinvest our resources in even better content. Let, let me make a transition here. And I love your optimism, but I'm hearkening back to an article that you co-authored for the Harvard Business Review, I think in July of 2020. And it was about uh, the downside at working at home. So like, on one hand, you've described the side of the coin that says we might be able to teach much better in the future. But if we're doing it from home, Ethan, there may be some downsides. Can you tell me about the study and, and whom you were working with? Absolutely. It's so funny. You write these articles, you put them out. This was the big, the big idea for HBS, sorry, the big idea for HBR in July. You, you write these articles, you think actually you're taking a positive tone and then people see the negative as well. So maybe, maybe it's just the eye of the beholder, Mike. Um, so Haley Blunden, who's a doctoral student at HBS, Andrew Brodke, who's a professor at UT Austin McComb School of Business, Juan Vinson, who's one of Andrew's doctoral students, and Ben Weber, who's the CEO of Humanize and an old friend of mine from my doctoral days, got together um, in March, actually, and then, and then ultimately wrote the article in July, and were deeply interested in how people were adjusting to working without an office. And for us, the real opportunity wasn't in just a single point in time study, but rather doing a longitudinal survey. So we surveyed a diverse group of more than 600 US-based white collar employees every two weeks, starting in March, and then going through actually through the current day. And this is the same set of people that you're always talking to, is that correct? That's right. Um, So we've kept the same group all the way through so we can actually see how they've adapted. And they're not a representative sample, but we think of them as a diverse set. They're half, roughly half women and men, roughly half married, about a third of them have children, about 40% managers, 60% frontline employees, they're all working virtually. So they, 
they hopefully speak to a lot of the people who'd be listening to this podcast. Did you have a hypothesis or was this just, let's see what's going on? You know, the fun part about having four co-authors, we all had hypotheses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I should start by saying what we wanted to measure uh, was all the typical things we in the OB world would measure. So we measured job satisfaction and work engagement and own performance perceptions, how much conflict they felt, how much stress they felt, you know, how many negative emotions were coming out of the workplace. We asked them about their current living situation. And then we took all that data on the survey. And you know me, Mike, you know, I'm only so much a fan of surveys. I like quote unquote real data too, real data showing actual activity of, of human beings at work. And so we compared that with two other data sources, one from Ben, so actual network data from several organizations of how people were digitally working together. Um, and then uh, some interviews we did of senior leaders once we had results to see what they thought of what we had found. Let, let me interrupt it and just annotate for people because we've thrown a lot of names about I've met Ben and for a couple of years, I don't know whether it was a you in a course, it might have been subsequent. We actually used stuff that his mentor, Sandy Pentland, had developed that tracked connections of kind of who is at the center of, uh, of a web. It also tracked uh, behavior in terms of a conversation of who was doing the most talking, who spoke the loudest and so forth. Very interesting to see where there were connections and where there were not. So Ben was bringing, I take it, a, a technical perspective to this. Do I have that right? Yeah, so, um, and and as you discovered from our earlier conversation about my classroom, my virtual classroom, I'm a tech geek too, but Ben has cooler technology. So Ben did his doctoral studies at the MIT Media Lab with Sandy. And their core innovation at the time were these badges you'd wear around your neck that would tell and record actually, and then ultimately tell you how much you spoke relative to those who you interacted with and who you were interacting with. It would build a quote unquote sociometric network of your face-to-face interactions. And they learned as they transitioned that technology from research to uh, the business that was first sociometric solutions and now is human eyes, that in order to get a full picture of someone's communication patterns, they needed the digital breadcrumbs as well. And so they'd pick up those breadcrumbs from exchange servers or from you know the Gmail servers, whatever, whatever server we're using for email is obviously capturing who we're interacting with over email or IM or in calendar invites, et cetera. What happened, of course, once we head into COVID land was that the face-to-face interactions no longer became relevant, but they built this entire infrastructure on the digital side and they were able to use that data from some of the organizations they work with to inform our study. And basically that lays out what the network is and who's the, at the hub and who's maybe at the fringe. Exactly. But I took you off a little bit in terms of the survey that you took on this with the various elements that you say are typical in organizational behavior uh, studies. What did you discover? So here's the positive side of the story. Uh, we, we found three curves. I think that's the easiest way to summarize our results. The first one was literally what we called the we can do this curve. Um, and there's a number of times I've heard people say things like, we're all in this together. Well, this was that result. So employee stress, negative emotions, task conflict, these all fell steadily down at least 10% from when virtual work began just because we got better at things. You know, people talked about taking my Zoom skills to the next level. People talked about other aspects in which they just had gotten better over time. 
and we saw that in that curve. The second curve then is the infamous V-curve. We're perhaps still waiting for that to happen in the economy, but on job satisfaction and work engagement, we saw what I think many people experienced, a dip, a, a, a very steep dip in the first two to four weeks of working virtually, but then it recovered almost equally steeply, um, such that really by the time we were writing the article, people felt that they were as good or better in job satisfaction engagement as they had been at the beginning. And then the third curve, which seems the most boring, but to me is actually perhaps the most interesting, is the flat line. So all the way through this, perceptions of own performance, how I felt about how I was doing at work, stayed flat. And if you think about the kind of transformation we went through, if, if that were any other kind of transformation, like one of these restructurings or an M&A transaction or something that completely changes the way we do work, we would expect you know, like a six month dip in perceptions of own performance, but this just stayed flat. We, we were truly in the creative, curious, we can do this, we can keep getting better situation that, that uh, quite frankly impresses me. The, uh, have you continued the, uh, the study at this point or is it complete? We've continued collecting the data. We haven't published anything yet on the data since July. Uh, I, I will say, you know, necessity of the mother is the mother of invention, not just, not just in the first few months of the pandemic, but has been since. And most of these results have remained relatively similar as, long, as far as we can tell from the data. There are a few other results that would lead you to have a less optimistic story. So I should make sure you hear those too. We saw primarily actually through Ben's data that work days were at least 10 to 20% longer at least in the initial stages. And it seemed as though we were actually getting better on that. And I think we're once again, tending towards longer work days in the more recent surveys. Kim, uh, apparently it's not in our imagination that we are working longer days. And here you are working several different uh, jobs simultaneously. Anything that you've heard from Ethan before that uh, surprises you or confirms things that you already know or questions that you've got? Well, Ethan, you know, it's just so fascinating, uh, both the method of how you sample people a bit over a long period of time. So you really get a, a sense of that trajectory. And in some ways, it's both reassuring and also surprising at how well we've coped. You know, the these last few months have been concurrent, overlapping, multiple crises. And yet, it sounds like as we in some ways might expect of, our, of ourselves, uh, we're so adaptable as a species that we've been able to figure out how to continue on. So I'm, I'm wondering if though, if you might tell us about uh, the people who are doing really well in your sample and the people who are having the most challenges. It's an excellent question because everything I've talked about so far, so far has been in averages. Mm -hmm. And they're obviously averages mask individual experiences. So we did actually do some, um, some cutting of the data and we found things that we expected and found things we didn't. Um, so we expected and found that respondents with spouses fared better, they had a support mm -hmm. system and that respondents with children fared worse uh, because those children were probably at home and not at school. 
Uh, and that's not that we say we don't love our children, but it does make working without an office a lot more challenging. <laughs> yes. We also found, though, as we as we, we thought, because there was so much talk about it, that people who were quote unquote introverted, or people who were high on introversion relative to extroversion, as we might say from Big Five perspective, would prefer this relative to their more extroverted peers. And we didn't find that introversion was a predictor of adaptation to the virtual world. What we found instead that agreeableness was mm. the best predictor of adaptation and narcissism the worst, mm. uh, which as you think about it actually makes some sense. Perhaps the two reason the two of you are, are doing so well is you're so agreeable. But that was, I think, probably the strongest finding we had in terms of the question of de-averaging the results. So, so Ethan, maybe this is a little premature, but when you look at this data and realize it's an ongoing study, I wonder what the takeaways are, what the prescriptive advice would be, both to individuals and the collective group that is collaborating. Is it too early to uh, draw some inferences about how we can do better and be happier without working 20% harder? Yeah, so we had several um, we had several hypotheses, let's say, about what's different this time. Because you'll remember, you've seen workplaces as I have for for over many generations of this virtual work phenomenon. And in the past, this hasn't really worked, and this time it seems like it is mostly working. And so one of our hypotheses is that it matters that we're all in this together. Uh, that mm -hmm that there aren't any second-class citizens, that the, that the constant comparisons we previously had to the office, oh, look at that person. You can see their kid walking behind them. That would never happen if they were more professional in the office. We don't have that conversation because we literally are all in it together and our reference points are therefore together. Um, and the technology, quite frankly, as much as we like to complain about it, is, is better enough um, that it supports all of it. So. So that's part of what's different this time, and that's one of the things that we would conclude. So Ethan, I wonder though, um, what if in any of your interview data, or just maybe some of your musings, what does it mean to us that uh, these days we're looking in uh, not at people's offices in many instances, but at their homes and their dining rooms. We're seeing where people actually live. We may be all in it together, but we don't all live in the same houses. And I'm wondering what your data might tell us about that experience of comparing and contrasting. So we did have a lot of free text responses that we coded. And most of them relayed a desire for affiliation. And, and some of them referenced their ability to affiliate based on what they're learning about somebody they might not otherwise learn about in the office. But also, we're like, you can only have so many Zoom happy hours, one person said. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it took, it's a little bit harder to turn off work outside of working hours uh, because we're at home. I'm trying to achieve, quote, more focused time and it simultaneously achieve, quote, more flexible time with family. And that's both easier because I'm not commuting and I'm around, but harder because it's not sort of done for me. I have to be more deliberate about it. And, and so, you know, one person did say, you know, it's weird how normal all of this has become. Like, and he even said the virtual meetings, the emails, 
and everyone looking grungy. <laughs> but, right. you know, but I think it has been, this is where we needed to adjust our reference point for what it means to affiliate. And some of it comes up short. And I, I would say, you know, I haven't, there's one other result um, that we found from Ben's data in particular, which says that our communication patterns have changed. Communication actually went up by about 40% in, in those mm -hmm. data sets with those that would be strong ties, people who we've already known, who we interact with on a daily basis, normally at work, people we know we need to, we need to interact with to get our work done. But those communi that communication is down at least 10% and in some cases much more with weak ties, those people who we just sort of trip upon if we were together in the same space, co-located, co-present physically. And, and we think that has potentially significant implications, not right now, but in 12 to 18 months. Because if, if we can take some of the weak tie research from the past and apply it, that's where organizational health in the future comes from. It's like an asset on the balance sheet. And if, we've, if we kind of get all through this and use up those, those connections that bring us diverse information, diverse opinions, better decision-making power, then at some point we might find ourselves, quite frankly, making worse decisions where it really counts. I have a question. I'm mindful of the clock to uh, Kim and, and Ethan, but this is strictly anecdotal. Uh, I remember the spring wall teaching. Uh, my colleagues were all saying, somehow or other, this feels like much more work. And as you know, we take class preparation very, very seriously at the Harvard Business School. We teach materials, sometimes with a new slant that we're well familiar with. I've felt that, that somehow it's harder. I wonder where our time where it's less efficient or whether there's stress or whatever. Do you have any guess as to where that 10 or 20% increase in time, which when you think about it, that's on the margin. I mean, that's after we're already working hard. Where that's going? Uh, I, anecdotally from my own experience, Mike, I have spent a lot more time teaching this semester than I have in the past. And that's not time in the classroom, the time in the classroom is the same. It's actually less. I don't have to walk to the classroom. I don't have to drive to the school. But I've had to basically redesign every single teaching plan for every single session because the pedagogy changes when the channel for communication changes. And it's exhausting. But I think that is part of this. Part of this is to be successful at least those of us who are used to doing things in the physically co-present world are finding that we need to redesign how we do this because it's different over Zoom, over Teams, over Chime, over, um, over Meets. And yet, I will say, as much as I feel like I need to invest so much additional time to be deliberate about how a pedagogy transfers or changes um, into the virtual classroom, my eight-year-old adjusts seemingly in a <laughs> And I wonder if we're actually just the ones who find this harder. Well, there are two possibilities here. And Kim, I wonder if you want to say in a moment the last word here. We hope we're out of this and we'll have the option of going back to at least some 
in-person learning. But the investment that you're making now could pay off in a couple of ways. One is if we're ever in a situation like this again, we've learned some important lessons. Two, if we're thinking about a hybrid approach to education that could be more virtual or more in-person or whatever, we've certainly learned to do the virtual part better. Any last thoughts or questions, Kim? Well, just that I, I think it's terrific the way in which you're giving us a glimpse into uh, both our current lives, our current selves, uh, through your research, Ethan, and also uh, these possibilities for the future. I mean, as Mike said, we don't know what, uh, what the future will bring or uh, what particular future is immediately ahead of us. But I am struck by your optimism that there is something about gaining comfort within this virtual world that we'll be able to use to our benefit even when a number of our meetings and classes return to be being face-to-face. -face. And your optimism is, uh, gives me hope. Uh, likewise for me, but Ethan, any last word from you, maybe on something that we haven't gotten to this time and we get to in a further conversation down the road? I, I, you know, I think this remains an open question, but I will say I, I don't think most organizations are going back. They have made permanent decisions about their real estate portfolio. Some companies have already cut back their real estate portfolio by almost a third and plan to go to a half. Those decisions don't just get turned on and off. And so, yes, a vaccine will change the way that we think about being able to have the flexibility and freedom to do this or that, virtual or in person. But um, I think the office is going to be much more an add-on than a default in the future. And I'm, quite frankly, I'm kind of in favor of that because I, I've been spending a lot of time, as I said, making this virtual muscle work. And we know something about muscles. We don't exercise them. They go away. So I, I hope that we consider how we keep this muscle and re-energize our in-person muscles at the same time. Well, that is a wonderful note to end on, Ethan. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and also for the uh, work that you're doing both in your research and in the classroom. So we uh, really appreciate having you on board. Thank you, Ethan. So, Kim, great to have a little Amherst College reunion, even though we're from very different uh, classes. Ethan is doing just wonderful stuff, don't you think? Uh, indeed. You know, to be able to uh, maneuver through this world and then to be studying how the rest of us are maneuvering through this world uh, is really quite something. And I think we, we've heard something truly extraordinary here about uh, the way in which people uh, adapt. We know that on the one hand, but just to, uh, to hear the stories of how uh, people have found their way back into an experience of productivity uh, and also how we're in the midst of finding ourselves potentially uh, into something brand new as we adjust you know, post-vaccine to choices that we'll have about whether we're working uh, virtually or whether we go back in the office. And clearly that's gonna be, um, the, the balance is gonna be shifting as Ethan told us. Well, I encourage people to uh, look up the Harvard Business Review of July uh, 2020 and to follow Ethan Bernstein's uh, work uh, in the future because 
as we move forward, Kim, and he strikes a very optimistic note on that, uh, he'll be keeping an eye on things. So great to be working with you, and I hope we can have an encore with Ethan down the road. <laughs>